Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 15 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, I would direct you to the show notes where you will find a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered in this episode and when. I will, however, give you the usual brief overview. In Spain, we unpacked Barcelona's frantic 4-2 win over Atletico Madrid. Barlow was lucky enough to be at Camp Nou for the game, so he gave us his thoughts on where the game was won and lost, with a particular focus on the integral role played by Dani Alves. Elsewhere in France, we considered the really quite impressive form of Matteo Guendouzi at Marseille. Marseille reportedly have an option to buy Guendouzi for about £10 million at the end of the season. He's of course on loan from Arsenal currently. So we looked at why Marseille would be really quite well advised to activate that option to buy and make Guendouzi a permanent Marseille player at the end of the season. In Germany, we considered Max Abel's magnificent legacy at Borussia Mönchengladbach following his decision to leave his post as sporting director at Borussia Park. And in Italy, we looked at Serie A's rejuvenated title race, asking ourselves whether AC Milan can now sustain a genuine title challenge following their 2-1 win over Inter in the most recent edition of the Derby della Madonnina. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Well, the dust has finally settled on the celebrations in terms of our 50th podcast episode. If you haven't already listened to that, do go and listen to that. But here we are, episode 51, on route now to our 100th episode. So if we're still about for episode 100, which I have every faith we will be, if we're still about for our 100th episode, we'll have to plan an even bigger celebration to to mark that particular occasion. Now, I'm joined, as always, by Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones. Rudy Barlow looks absolutely exhausted. I'll come to you in a minute, Barlow. Michael Jones, in the meantime, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. I didn't quite have the pleasure of attending the biggest match in Italy this weekend, unlike something that Barlow is going to tell us about for his version in Spain very soon. But yeah, feeling fully charged and ready to go. Glad to hear it, Michael. Glad to hear it. Now, Rudy Barlow, as I was just saying, you do look somewhat exhausted. And I'm saying that not to be cruel. I'm saying that to be kind, just to to sort of 
line the listeners up if you're feeling slightly lethargic for the, the, this evening's episode, this evening's recording. If Barlow is, and, and I don't think he will be, but if for whatever reason Barlow is below his usual high standards, then uh, we can forgive him because he's had quite the weekend, Barlow, haven't you? Yeah, I've been living life to the fullest for, for last weekend in Barcelona. I um, took took many of its joys and uh, experienced them this weekend. Um, it was, yeah, can't take the smile off my face. I've had a, had a fantastic time. Um, you won't find me more content, Ali. Absolutely, but you've had a wonderful dose of serotonin, it sounds. And yeah, on that note, there really is only one place to start. You were at Camp Now two days ago in Barcelona witness the heavyweight clash between the Catalans and their rivals, Atletico Madrid. Not for the title this time, but for a place in the top four and Champions League football. Both teams will have seen this as a launch pad of sorts for the rest of their season. It was Xavi, whoever, who left the happier of the two managers with a 4-2 win, having gone behind after eight minutes and finishing with 10 men after Dani Alves' red card. A really quite phenomenal match, Barlow. Where was it? A really quite phenomenal match, Barlow. Where does it leave Barcelona? Yeah, it was a phenomenal match. It felt, especially for uh, Barcelona fans, as, as Barcelona dropped deep to defend their sort of two-goal lead towards the end. Certainly for me, it felt about a thousand minutes long. <laughs> I never thought that game was going to end. But it was it was because so much happened, especially the first 20 minutes. It was 2-1. It could have been 2-3, 3-2. It seemed almost as if every chance or every attack was going to end in a goal. Neither of these teams really showed themselves to be sort of (laughs) very accomplished sides defending really, really fragile both sides defensively. It was it was almost remarkable to see it at the inverted commas top level, which is what these teams aspire to be. And and yeah, it was it was a very good performance overall. I think for Barcelona, it was in terms certainly if we compare it to what they have been showing and what they have been doing, there was a real pace about this side. There was an energy, there was a willingness to sort of take on responsibility and to to try and change the match in their favour, to to come up with the big moments. Which sometimes, I mean, you could accuse some of their players and well the team as a whole of going missing when they've sort of gone behind or when they've had a red card. And there was a worry that uh, when Danny Alves got sent off, that if that third goal had gone in, perhaps they would have collapsed, but they managed to keep, keep it tight. They managed to save themselves. It was a debut for Adama Traore, of course. Aubameyang was also a debutante in the second half. Danny Alves was back at camp. Now it's the first time they'd played there in 50 days. There was a real sense of occasion and and you could really feel it. It was uh, it was quite a buzz, I have to say, <laughs> to put it bluntly. But it was interesting enough because Alves obviously got sent off, but it was remarkable how much of a role he played in this match. He almost, I think it was his role, not necessarily him alone, but his role and his the things that he did that won the game for Barcelona. He was the key to the superiorities in midfield. Of course, initially he was starting at right back. But the amount that he was speaking with Xavi on the touchline, the way that he seemed to pop up all over the pitch, he, he gave the assist for the first goal, so probably sort of right side of the box, where you'd expect kind of a normal right back to, to be. He scored from the edge of the box, arriving as a sort of second midfielder. And, and yeah, he was all over the place. It was, 
kind of like watching a combination lock. And as Barcelona tried to unpick Atleti, it was Alves who would be the one who would move, find it, and you could see it sort of click when he got the ball because he was always picking up the ball in the best place in space. And then from there, Barcelona's attacks really started. And you have to take your hat off to him. I mean, it's, it's incredible to see someone at that age who's still playing with such an intelligence of the game and such an understanding of, of space that he, he, he looked like the best player on the pitch for the 60 minutes before he got sent off. Um, but yeah, I think it's hard partly to, to assess this Barcelona because as I say, Atleti, they were incredibly fragile. And I'll come on to that. But it was, it was encouraging from Barcelona. Certainly on the ball, they showed a bit of pausa, a bit of sort of ability to sort of take control of a match and to, to not be sort of overwhelmed by the, the occasion. And it also was really refreshing to see Adama Traore and Aubameyang and Ferran Torres, three players who don't come to the ball unless they need to, unless they need to get on the ball. They are making runs in behind or they're keeping their position. And that really is, for me, perhaps the biggest difference for Barcelona going into the second half of the season. Because let's not forget that for the last four or five years, we've been watching a side that's based on Messi, Suarez, Paulinho at one stage, Arturo Vidal at one stage. After that, there was Griezmann. There's, there's been so many forwards that Barcelona have had that primarily want to get on the ball when perhaps they needed somebody to run. And uh, yeah, I, I was reminded of Ludovic Juli a bit uh, by Adama Traore, someone who, who, yeah, just held his width, got on the ball when he needed to. And and didn't wasn't overly sort of yeah attracted to the ball and uh, it was quite a win for Barcelona emotionally I think this is a really big one but we'll see again I'm going to mention my next quote and this kind of goes for Barcelona too. You mentioned that Atleti look frail. They now slide out of the Champions League spots. Once again, they just can't seem to get any sort of momentum going. Seeing them up close and personal, what do you think they're missing? Yeah, so Josema Jimenez, who this is the quote I'm referring to, after the Valencia match a week, a week and a half previously, Aleti had gone, I think they'd gone 2-0 down and were looking really very poor against Valencia. And they managed to turn it around. They managed to get it back to 3-2 in the dying moments and it felt like a real moment of the season this is where we're going to sort of recover that atleti feeling and it felt like that spirit was back but Jimenez came out after the game in a really good interview and he was talking and because he was asked the, the sort of obvious question is this a turning point can you build on this so on so on and Jimenez was just very sincere he said well yeah it could be a turning point but this isn't going to matter if we lose the next game at camp now we need to to put a run of form together and a run of consistency together in order to make this important. And that was what was missing once again, because there, although there are as many good things in this society side and, and many good players, it, it's so hard to see them when it seems like they're so handicapped. Certainly early on in that match, I think it could have gone their way. Jao Felix has a really, really good chance at one, one apiece that he should have put away. And it's almost like a, it's like watching a flickering TV is that you can see for moments it clicks into picture and you can see what it's meant to be, or you can see the qualities of those players on show. But for so much of it, it's just kind of blank noise and you're not entirely sure what, what is supposed to be going on. 
for instance, João Felix and Luis Suarez started up front. Suarez gets an assist and a goal. João Felix, I'd say, probably caused Barcelona more problems than anyone else in those first 20, 30 minutes. But they almost looked as if they were playing separately to the rest of the side, especially without the ball. They, they, they may as well have not existed, to be honest. And, and so they kind of did their jobs in a sense, but also were completely lost in the context of the game for the vast majority of it. And it's, yeah, it, it's really hard to put, uh, put a label on this Atleti team because they seem to be constantly dealing with, and this is partly down to the unbalanced squad, which again, mentioned that before, but they seem to be constantly dealing with someone being out of position or someone being asked to do a job that simply they can't. And prime examples being the fullbacks, which is the area of the pitch, which costs them most, in my view. Sime Vesalco just... He, he's not a right back in this system or perhaps he's just lacking confidence, but he was asked to do some duty sort of getting up the pitch and bringing the ball out was incapable of doing it. Mario Armoso got absolutely roasted, to be to be brutally honest, by Adama Traore quite a few times and he cannot defend out wide. That's just not what he's good at and never has been. Savic and Josema, uh, Jimenez sort of in the centre of the defence weren't as bad, but they were constantly arguing with Jan Oblak, and it seemed as if not only that things were going wrong, mistakes were being made, but that they didn't know who was at fault, that they couldn't work out what was meant to be happening and why it was going wrong. And that's probably the biggest, the biggest talking point, I think, for this Atleti team is that much more than sort of a, a rallying cry that those sort of shouts were. And, and you sort of think of that, you think of like Cholo Simeone, yelling at his players and in motivation it was more frustration than that it was more complaining it was more sort of pointing fingers as opposed to sort of boys focus let's let's sort of get through this spell and and, and go on to something more and uh yeah i think every time a player changes for atleti it almost changes the way they play and that's that's the mark of a side that doesn't quite know what it is which is what we've been saying all season but it's starting to hit the point where it could really damage their hopes of being in the top four and and change the way that Atleti look going forward for the next two, three years. No, it sounds a fascinating experience um, from the game there. But just going back to our 50th episode, we talked about Athletic Club with Jonathan Fadugba and all the unique aspects of the club off the pitch. On the pitch, they've secured four wins out of four, they're free to the Copa del Rey semi-finals and have as good a shot as anyone at winning it. It looks as if they might secure European football next season after all, despite the fact they've been mid-table for many months. Yeah, and it's a credit to Marcelino because I think, again, we, we've sort of touched on their lack of ability going forward and, and their struggles up front. But we'll start off with, yeah, that fantastic win against Real Madrid rocking San Mamés, you could hear the anthem blaring out and you knew it was a special night for them. And Real Madrid, to be fair, they were missing Benzema and they were missing a few of the South American uh, players just due to World Cup qualifiers. So it comes with a bit of a caveat, but they've now put out Barcelona and Real Madrid in the Copa del Rey. They're through to a semi-final. One of the most interesting semi-finals in the Copa del Rey, I think we've seen in, in many years as well, I should point out, Valencia face off against Athletic. Marcelino's former club and Rayo Vallecano have made their first semi-final in about 40 years against Real Betis who, who of course are strong contenders for it as well so it's a fascinating Copa del Rey I think Athletic 
given the way that we've seen them perform in big games previously in cup competitions, and I know that they've struggled, but they've got to the finals at least. And the finals, they generally come up against one of the big boys, especially Leo Messi. And, and they've not quite gone over the line, but I think this is a real big opportunity for them to break that duck. Alex Berenguer got a late, late goal in that game. He sort of cuts in onto his left foot, sweeps it home. It was it was Stuff of Dreams winners for um a Stuff of Dreams winner for Athletic and a rocking atmosphere there. A word for Inigo Martinez as well. He's an absolute monster of a centre back. He's so, so very good at the moment. And I just want to sort of take us back to Euro 2020. Well, 21. But Inigo Martinez was selected for the Spain squad, in fact. And in the end, he pulled out of it. He withdrew. He put out a statement. said, look, guys, I mean, I'm really honoured to be called up for this. It's, it's again, stuff of dreams for him. But I'm, mentally, I'm just not in the right kind of state. After the pandemic, after so many games, after the way that the, way that the world's gone, mentally, I just I can't handle this right now. I'm going to get myself right. I'm going to come back. And, and I'll be better. And that's exactly what he did. And he's seen the rewards this season. But yeah, fair play to him because it's a, a level of maturity, sort of safeguarding his happiness and his well-being above sort of personal achievement. I don't think we are accustomed to seeing from many humans. So credit to him. It's paying off massively. Beside him is Danny Bibian, who's a very exciting centre-half. They've not lost the game with him playing in the side so far. And... Brendy Boyle on Twitter, he also pointed out sort of that attacking issue, the fact that they're now a point off Europe, semi-finals of the Copa del Rey, all doing so without sort of an out-and-out goal scorer. And, and yeah, it once again goes to show, in my view, that Marcelino's not only one of the most underrated managers in Spain, but in Europe. And I think if a big club does take the chance on him, because he's a spiky character, but if they do take a chance on him in the coming years, I think they would be re- rewarded with trophies, in my view. Excellent insight, as always, Barlow. Great to hear as well about your first-hand experience of Barcelona's win over Atletico Madrid. Plenty for us and the listeners to consider. OK, we are going to take a quick break before coming back very shortly to discuss French football. We're going to look at Jorge Sampaoli's Marseille. We're going to unpack their 5-2 win over Angers recently. We'll be right back. In France, Marseille recovered from a disastrous opening 11 minutes on match day 23 to register an emphatic 5-2 win over Gérald Batikler's Angers side. The erraticism of that encounter served as a throwback of sorts to the frantic early days of Jorge Sampoli's reign at Stade Velodrome. More recently, however, the Argentine coach has tended to opt for a more pragmatic approach. Predicting Sampoli's next tactical move would perhaps require an intense exercise in crystal ball gazing. So let's focus on that 5-2 victory over Anger last Friday night. Which individuals impressed you and what were the key takeaways more broadly from what was a really quite pulsating encounter? Yeah, Michael, you're right. It really was an entertaining game. I didn't catch it at the time. I was too busy watching Kilmarnock suffering at the hands of our broth, a 1-0 defeat. But I did watch uh, quite a lot of the game back retrospectively, if you like. And yeah, it was. It was, it was like the Marseille of the first few weeks of the season as opposed to the Marseille of, of late. And 
yeah, it was good fun. You asked me which players stood out to me, and, and yeah, there were two players in particular who really impressed, not just me, but impressed most people watching this one. The first one, quite obviously, Arcadius Milik. He was mightily impressive. Michael, he scored a hat-trick, and, and he provided Marseille with a real presence in the final third. Just on Milik, I think there is an argument to be made that he is perhaps the best out-and-out, number nine, the best true number nine in Ligue 1. And, and a lot has been made of the fact that before the game against Angers, he'd only scored one goal in 12 league games. But I do think that without providing any context, that's quite an unfair statistic to spotlight. Just in terms of that context, he had only started seven of those 12 games in which he had uh, only scored one goal and he was coming off the back of, let's not forget, that really quite troublesome knee injury he picked up back in May, which of course kept him out of the Euros and, and robbed him of his pre-season. And I, I do feel like the, the extent to which missing out on pre-season can hinder a player's season on the whole, the extent of, of that hindrance, that can quite often be understated. People can quite often forget that actually if you don't have that pre-season, it has a, a knock-on effect for not just when you come back from injury, but for your season as a whole, you know, the pre-season is crucial to get a solid pre-season, a productive pre-season under your belt is absolutely crucial for any player in any event. Michael, if we do take a step back and we look at Milik's performances in other competitions, as opposed to just looking at his performances in Ligue 1, he scored nine goals in eight appearances across the Europa League and the Coupe de France. So, He's scoring goals there for what would seem like fun. And yeah, he's shown in that game against Angers that he absolutely has has goals in him. And, and that's why I, I think, Michael, he's one of the best, if not the best, out-and-out out number nine in French football's top flight. If he's fit, Michael, he absolutely should start for this Marseille team. You saw his impact against Angers. And yet, while it might seem obvious, or to me it seems obvious, it seems... Absurd to not start Milik. It seems obvious that he should be one of the first names on the team sheet if he's fit, to me anyway. There has been quite a bit of debate on French radio about the system that Sam Pauli is trying to play, about the experiment, if you like, playing Dimitri Paye as, as a false nine. And so when we consider Sam Pauli's willingness to try Paye as a false nine, when we think about Sam Pauli's desired system on the whole, then you can maybe see that that system isn't something with which Arcadius Milik is entirely compatible. But that said, I, I really think, Michael, it does seem to me that Sam Pauli would be cutting off his nose to spite his own face were he to leave out a fit and available Arcadius Milik, were he to, to leave him out of his starting 11. Now, Marseille create chances, they create numerical advantages in the final thirds, and in terms of the underlying numbers, only Glenn and PSG have averaged more shot-creating actions per 90 in Ligue 1 this season than Marseille. And I'll reiterate it, Milik is the perfect player to get into the right areas and apply the finishing touches to those actions. He's a, I'm not going to say he's a world-class finisher, maybe there's an argument to be made that he is, but he's, he's definitely on that tier just below world-class in terms of his, his finishing ability. He has to start for me if he's fit and 
available. Now, elsewhere, Matteo Guendouzi really impressed me too. As he tends to do, he played with real emotion. He played with real intensity in the middle of the park. And yeah, he's confrontational, to put it mildly. Yes, he's quite divisive, to put it mildly. But after a shaky start to his time on the South Coast, he's really started to flourish under Sam Pauli. And I think a lot of that is, well, a lot of it's obviously down to his ability and the fact that he is maturing as a player. But a lot of it's also down to the fact that Marseille seems to be the perfect home for Matteo Guendouzi. The fans love him and you get the impression that he loves the fans. I mean, it goes without saying that Guendouzi is a fiery player. He has that fiery personality. and Sometimes he's a little bit too fiery, a little bit too confrontational. But that works in Marseille. They are a team who need characters like Guendouzi. They need a manager like Sam Pauli. They need people like that. That's just the type of club that they are. And I think, yeah, I think that Guendouzi and Marseille are a perfect fit. Interestingly enough as well, Marseille apparently have an option to buy Guendouzi at the end of his loan. He's, of course, on loan from Arsenal. But they have an option to buy him for about £10 million. And when you think about Guendouzi's ability, when you think about the fact that he's still only 22, I think that, that that's such a bargain. He's obviously not the most polished player. But that can come, you know, he can refine aspects of his game. He, he can, yeah, he can work on various aspects of his game. The raw attributes are there. He's really improved this season. He's having, in the eyes of most people, a really quite fantastic season at the Velodrome. And just to look at the underlying numbers, for a while I thought, what does Gwen Doozy actually do? And I asked the question of a few people and, and a few people came back to me and said, he's, he's a ball progressor, he's a ball carrier. And that really is reflected in his underlying numbers, he's in the 98th percentile for progressive carries across Europe's top five leagues compared to his positional peers. And then Ligue 1 specifically, he's top in Ligue 1 for progressive carries. He's in the 89th percentile for passes into the final third across the top five leagues compared to his positional peers. And then when we look at Ligue 1 specifically, he's second for that particular statistic. And then also he's in the 88th percentile for progressive passes across the top five leagues in Europe. Those numbers are fantastic. Obviously, to reiterate, he is quite raw, but I think what we're seeing this season is Guendouzi finally finding a home and really starting to flourish under a manager who, ostensibly anyway, really seems to be placing a lot of trust in him. Looking now at Marseille more generally and some of the key takeaways more broadly, from that really quite emphatic win over Angers, I think that the game confirmed what we already knew, which is that we can never really be too sure what to expect from Jorge Sampaoli's Marseille. Now, I was speaking to someone recently, Owen Brown actually, at Pure Football. He was saying that when I was watching Comarnock's game against Arbroath, I was going through the seven stages of grief. <laughs> and that got me thinking. Um, Marseille have perhaps gone through the seven stages of chaos if there is such a thing. Now, just this season alone under Sam Pauli, when we think about it, we had those frantic opening couple of league games, we had the mind-numbingly dull Europa League games against Lazio and Galatasaray. Anybody who watched those, having not watched Marseille's first couple of games, would not believe you if you said that actually Marseille are really quite fun to watch. We had, or we still have, the fact that Marseille have picked up 12 points from losing positions, that's quite chaotic in itself. There's been, on the other hand, several narrow, low-scoring victories. We had uh, the volatile 90 minutes, if we can call it that, against Angers and 
Also, um, quite regrettably, Marseille, of course, been involved in more than one game with crowd trouble. So when we think about it that way, that's just been squeezed into the opening half and a little bit of the season. So much has happened that, yeah, you could probably say if there's such a thing as seven stages of chaos, Marseille are in the middle of going through those seven stages. They maybe have already gone through them already and maybe they're back for more. That win against Angers maybe starts the, the second cycle of the seven stages of chaos. But what I will say is, Marseille are far from perfect. Sampaoli's in-game management in particular has often been questioned. His ability to react positively to tweaks from... Other managers in game, look at the, the game against Leon in particular, Peter Bosch outcoached Hockey Sampaoli. That was just the other week there, a midweek game rearranged, of course, after the crowd trouble at the initial game between the two at the Group Ama. Peter Bosch outcoached Sampaoli, Marseille were 1-0 ahead, and then Bosch made little tweaks, little tactical tweaks, little system tweaks, and Sampaoli had no answer to it. So they're not perfect. Sampaoli's not a perfect manager, but for Marseille, Sampaoli, in the same way that Guendouzi is a perfect fit, Sampaoli and Marseille, it's a perfect marriage. And in any event, they are an extremely interesting case study. They give us plenty to talk about on this podcast. Okay, we are going to take a quick break now. We will fill up our water bottles and we'll come back to look at Germany. We're going to look at Max Abel's departure following his really quite successful time as sporting director of Borussia Mönchengladbach. In Germany, Borussia Mönchengladbach have endured a rather complicated season so far, hovering ominously above the relegation playoff spot. Their problems were confounded further when it was announced at the end of January that Max Eberl would be stepping down as the club's sporting director. Abel has been at Gladbach since 1999, joining initially as a player before working as an academy manager for a few years and ultimately taking on the role of sporting director in 2008. The 48-year-old has become a veritable part of the furniture at Borussia Park. So, Ali, how significant might the loss of the revered Abel be for the Fools? Yeah, Barlow, he will be an absolutely huge loss, a monumental loss, without doubt. I think Abel's legacy at Gladbach will be almost universally positive and, and really with good reason. Before I come on to explaining that good reason, I do just firstly want to address the nature of Abel's departure. Uh, quite fittingly, earlier in the episode, Barl, you mentioned Inigo Martinez and his decision to, to turn down Spain's call of duty for Euro 2020, you know, putting his own mental health, his own mental well-being first. And that ties in quite nicely with Abel's departure and the reasons behind his departure from Gladbach. At a media briefing announcing his decision to step down, Abel said, I'm drained and tired and no longer have the strength to carry out the job in the way the club deserves. After 23 years, I'm ending something that has been my life. I've always enjoyed and had fun working during this time, but a lot of things that happen in this job aren't enjoyable anymore. And I think that Abel deserves a lot of credit for showing that bravery, if you like, to say that he wasn't in the best place and, yeah, to, to ultimately prioritise his own mental health. 
he could have kept his head down and powered through. Not really a big fan of the phrase power through. It doesn't sit too too comfortable with me, particularly when it comes to mental health. But anyway, um, he, he didn't keep his head down. You know, he could have kept his head down and, and powered through to the significant detriment of his own well-being. But he's he stepped down and he's explained his reasoning in a really quite public forum. Now, for somebody with considerable sway, at least in the world of German football and, yeah, probably further afield as well, to speak so openly like that, that's an important step as we look to continue to erode the stigma surrounding mental health. I think for able to come out and say stepping down, but not just say that he's stepping down, say why he's stepping down. I think that's a really positive step in the kind of, yeah, in the battle, if you like, to make mental health be something that people are more comfortable discussing to make mental health be something that people accept is, you know, people have issues with their mental health. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And yeah, to, to really erode the, the stigma surrounding mental health. So in brief, I think even more available now than I did previously. And let me tell you, Barlow, I thought really quite highly of him even before he announced his departure uh, and his reasons for doing so. And I say that because Abel would absolutely feature really quite predominantly in any discussion about the top sporting directors in Germany and perhaps even the top sporting directors in Europe over the last decade or so. Now, I was speaking to Byron at Pure Football about Abel. Byron, of course, works uh, at the Bundesliga. And he was saying that, yeah, Abel's done well and there could be very little criticism of Abel, if any, at all. Just to kind of summarise what Abel has done well, guys, he's, he's regularly brought in players shrewdly before selling them on at the right moment. The timing of, of the sale of a player is, is so hard to get right, isn't it? But he, he seemed to have this talent for, for not all the time, of course, but quite often he would time the sale of the players almost perfectly. And as a result, they were able to bring in considerable profits. I'm just going to name a few of the more high-profile examples. Look at Torgan Hazard, for example. They made £15 million profit on him. Marco Royce, £15 million profit on him as well. Granit Xhaka, huge profit on him, £33 million profit. And even Yannick Vestergaard brought in from Wolfsburg and then sold on to Southampton, an £11 million profit. That's just shrewd operating in the transfer window. It's shrewd recruitment. It's shrewd squad management. And Abel was really responsible for all of that. And we do want to try and be balanced. And, and I did speak to Byron about, you know, in terms of potential criticisms that people could potentially raise. He could maybe say that he could have held out for more money for the likes of Vincenzo Grifo or in particular Nico Schultz. Of course, there was another example recently, Dennis Zakaria sold to Juventus for a fee, which in my opinion was a lot less than what they could perhaps have fetched had it not been for the fact that Zakaria was out of contract at the end of the season. And you can say, well, maybe managed contracts a little bit better. There's similar issues with Matthias Ginter, for example. And you could maybe argue that contract management could perhaps have been better in those circumstances. But on the whole, I think we, we do really have to commend Abel for his management of Gladbach's recruitment and transfer activity. I think as well, I mean, we focus there on how 
Abriel had an impact off the pitch and I suppose it's all intrinsically connected, isn't it, off the pitch and on the pitch. But just focusing at now on some of their sort of on-the-pitch achievements, there is a really nice piece on this actually on the Bundesliga's website. I've spoken about the Bundesliga's excellent content on, on several occasions. And it's a really comprehensive piece on how much of an impact Abel had on Gladbach's on the field success. Now, in 2007-2008, during that season, Gladbach were playing in the Zweite Liga. And when Abel was appointed sporting director in October 2008, they had being promoted back to the top flight, but they were at that point struggling in the relegation zone. So, yeah, they, they were navigating really quite choppy waters. And when we consider this next statistic, I think we do see the full impact of Abel's contributions as sporting director. Since Abel's first full season, so that would be what, 2009, 2010, since that season until 2020, 2021, Gladbach averaged 52 points a season. In the previous 12 campaigns, their average was 39. You know, that's obviously, what, 13 points of a difference. That's quite significant. Their average finishing position in terms of Gladbach's first full season with Abel as sporting director until 2020, 2021, their average finishing position was seventh with six top six finishes compared with their previous average, i.e. in the 12 seasons prior to Abel's first full season as one director, their average position in those 12 seasons was 12. So there you go, five places of a difference, which is in a league of 18. That's, again, quite significant. Perhaps the most visible representation of just how impressive Gladbach have been under the sporting directorship, if you like, of Max Abel. Since 2009-2010, Gladbach ranked fourth behind Bayern, Dortmund and Bayer Leverkusen for total points gained over that period. So I think, yeah, that speaks volumes of just how well Abel has done as sporting director. The Foles also qualified for the UEFA Champions League four times over Abel's time as sporting director, reaching the group stage on three occasions. And they also appeared in the Europa League on three occasions. So they had plenty of European nights to savour. You'll remember, of course, they progressed quite brilliantly from that group, which contained Shakhtar, Donetsk, Inter and Real Madrid. They were perhaps a little bit disappointing in the round of 16, but that in itself, just reaching the round of 16, was a huge achievement for Gladbach. Now, on a closing note, I would just echo the words of Matt Ford and Yannick Spates, uh, writing for Deutsche Welle. They said that Abel's Gladbach legacy will live on for decades after bringing stability to a proud historic club which had for far too long been in the shadows. And if there was any doubt that Abel was a Gladbach legend, I think he cemented that status as a Gladbach legend with the manner of his departure by being so open, by being so mature and being so brave about his reasons for doing so and speaking about it so publicly. I do have to yeah, really commend Mark Sable both for his achievements during his time as sporting director of Borussia Mönchengladbach and for the way in which he conducted himself as he announced his departure. Okay, we are going to take another really quick break before coming back to look at Italian football. Michael Jones has got some really quite juicy topics for us to mull over. We'll be right back. Italian football returned with a flourish after its mid-season break. 
serving up one of the most dramatic Derby de la Madonnas in recent history. Inspired by Olivier Giroud, AC Milan came from behind to register a 2-1 win over Inter, blowing the title race wide open in the process. Unlike their rivals, Stefano Pioli's Rosoneri notably won't have to contend with the distraction of European football. So, Michael, can Milan now mount and, more importantly, sustain a genuine title challenge? Yeah, I think sustain's a key word there. I mean, the, the, the result alone has almost meant they're sort of making a second coming, which is something that Stefano Pioli's AC Milan sides have been guilty of in the past. They've gone on these tremendous, especially first half of season's runs, and then they start to drop off. But this time, there's a bit more going for them, and there's something in the air, I think, um, for the red side of Milan. And, you know, like you said, they've got the benefit of no Europe, but they've also got returning players. Um, they've managed to navigate a really difficult January on a real threadbare squad, picking up excellent results against the likes of Roma, who they beat comfortably. But it's also a young squad, which is growing up together. And I think there's real signs of that. There's been signs of that in the past month when they've been, you know, dealing with, you know, numerous setbacks. But more and all, what this result will do for them, I think, could really catapult them right into that title race. And it was just a sensational match, one of the best derbies. I think, I think the best derby I've seen since I've sort of been covering Italian football a lot more. And it's because the game just had so many levels to it. I mean, Inter Milan really have been by far the standout team in Italian football this season. We've discussed them extensively, their ability to control games, score numerous goals, um, score from so many different patterns of play, so many different players. And they were 1-0 up going into the break. Um, Ivan Perisic scored a goal, which reminded me a little bit of the goal he scored against France in the World Cup final for Croatia, you know. And I was thinking going into half-time, you know, thinking ahead to the podcast, as we always do, thinking, you know, this will be a tribute to Ivan Perisic, which in some ways I wish it was. But AC Milan came back in the second half with such fight and vigour. And there was a really important tactical change by Stefano Pioli, which I'm going to come on to in terms of the evolution, not just the players, but the coach also during his time at AC Milan, despite him being an experienced figurehead. And that was to take Frank Kessier off, who's in the last final few months of his contract, and bring on Brahim Diaz. Now, Kessier was playing as a number 10 to try and stifle the impact of Marcelo Brozovic, who's maybe been the best player in Serie A this season, certainly the best central midfielder. And it just didn't work at all. It, instead, what Inter Milan did was, with Brozovic still playing effectively, was work it out to the wings and create numerous opportunities down there. And the only reason AC Milan really got into one halftime at 1-0 is because of Mike Magnan, who another player who's just had a sensational season for the Rossoneri. But I just think that there was so many aspects of this AC Milan team to love. And again, youth is such a big theme for this. And then so many players have grown so much. I mean, Mike Magnan was already very established before joining AC Milan. He'd been key for Lille when they won league in last mm. season and he's really really kicked really filled the boots if not maybe been better albeit at a different stage of his career to what Gianluigi Donnarumma was last season and then I think where you know where AC Milan won this was that they treated the game more like a derby they had that aggression Inter Milan was sort of treating this like every other game and when they got one nil up and they're very dominant 
it allowed AC Milan to really, once they had the bit between the teeth and it was led by, that they really got back into it. And it was led by Sandro Tonali. And Tonali at just 21 years of age, difficult first season in AC Milan after signing on loan from Brescia last season, has really kicked on this season. And in the end, I think he was maybe one of those most responsible for the turnaround. He won the ball back for Olivier Giroud's second goal, completed the most progressive carries with seven across the match. Jointly with Pierre Callalou, another young player signed from Lyon's academy, another player, you know, they've used that French market really well, AC Milan, in the past few years. We always talk about Premier League teams using that French market really well, but I think AC Milan are another team who have done that brilliantly in years gone by. And Callalou hadn't even made a senior appearance before making a move to AC Milan. And he's had to fill the boost to Simon Kiev, Fikayo Tomori, who have both been injured. Tomori with the most points. Uh, per game and in the Milan shirt, the best ratio for it this season. And yeah, I think it's just going to show that, you know, they've got players coming back from injury now, the likes of Ante Rebic, Fikayo Tomori, who I just mentioned. And there is real optimism. And it's not just blown it wide open for themselves. It's also blown it open for Napoli, who Inter Milan face at the weekend. And that could set up, you know, the whole storyline of this title race could just completely change in a matter of a fortnight for Inter Milan and from what looked like they were in cruise control maybe making their way to the league title has now just been completely winding up and I think a lot of it goes down to Stefano Pioli's man management the substitutions he may bring in on Brahim Diaz and they were just yeah able to see this game out and I think it's going to be it's going to be a tough period here for Simone Inzaghi now who's the Inter Milan manager of course because He's not won a title before. He has been in an unsuccessful title race with Lazio, but not as favourites. But now in the favourites, it's unknown territory for him. And all in all, I think it's just made for such a compelling second half to the Serie A season. Elsewhere, Juventus also enjoyed their return to action. The old lady dispatched Elas Verona 2-0 with goals from debutants Dusan Vlavic and Denis Zakaria. Just based on your initial impressions, just how much of an impact did the pair have on this team? Yeah, I thought they had a sensational impact. I mean, Juventus were actually really, really fun to watch, which is something that I've barely ever said. I don't think (laughs) I've even ever said on this podcast. I don't think I've ever said Juventus are a really, really fun team to watch. But begrudgingly, to an extent, they were. And... Vlahovic was part of the reason he certainly gave them more of a focal point. And but out of the two of them, you know, obviously they both had great debuts, they both scored. You don't see that happening too much where two new signings score both goals, which lead to a team winning a game. But Zakaria, who isn't known for his goals, was absolutely brilliant. I mean, like you said, Ali, when you were talking about Max Ebel and Bruce Munchen Gladbach, like he should be worth a lot more than he was. And for them to get him for, I think it was less than 4 million euros, or he's around the 4 million euros mark is an absolute bargain. And when he came in, I must admit, I wasn't quite sure how he was going to be used, but off this first game, it looks like he's going to be used in a really dynamic, he could be used in a really dynamic role for Juventus. I've mainly watched him for Switzerland in the past, where Vladimir Petkovic, obviously the former Swiss boss, had always used him quite conservatively in the sense to give Granit Xhaka a bit more freedom in that Swiss midfield. And I thought maybe he's going to be sitting deep to like to give the permission for the likes of Artemelo and Adrian Rabiot, the two who were starting alongside him in this game, more licensed to run forwards. And when, in fact, it was actually Artemelo who started in the middle, giving Zakaria the license to run forwards. And this sort of rampaging runs through the middle and his one-twos just 
powering through the Hellas Verona defence is just a joy to behold, really. And, you know, this wasn't an easy game, but I think what, what we should know is that Juventus are actually the most informed team in Italy at the moment. They've, over the past 12 games, I think they've picked up more points than Inter Milan. And even though Inter Milan obviously lost recent at the weekend, like I just spoke about, they've still generally been unstoppable and they've put a big distance on all the other title rivals in the last few months. Nevertheless, Juventus still haven't been that good to watch. They haven't been that free-flowing and they've been really struggling against um, teams like Hellas Verona who aren't scared of taking the game to them as they showed when they beat them earlier in the season 2-1. But this was a really fun Juventus team and one of the things I really liked about it was the change in formation. Massimiliano Allegri had typically deployed a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 sort of holding formation to varying effects and success this season. But he decided to go with the 4-3-2-1 or a 4-3-1-2, where he would either use Paolo Dybala and Alvaro Morata in the spaces, Dybala on the right-hand side, Morata on the left, both could cut inside behind Blahovic, or Dybala would occupy more of that space and Morata would play further forwards with Vlahovic which was, again, kind of reminiscent of maybe my favourite Juventus side under Allegri when they got to the Champions League final against Barcelona and they had the likes of Pogba, Marquisio, uh, Morata in that team, of course, and they got played a 4-3-1-2 and got to the Champions League final. So I thought it was, I think there's some really encouraging signs. I, I would say one thing of note is that Hellas Verona, because they weren't afraid to take the game to them, there will be teams who are, and seeing how they'll cope like that is going to be an interesting development over the next few weeks. But there's a lot of excitement for me with Juventus at the moment. And I, I really do think that top four should be the sort of the minimum they should be aiming for now, despite you know they them being in, in the relegation zone back in September. It's marked a marvelous upturn. And so finally, some shrewd transfer business, which is a team that were previously known for it, haven't done so over the last few years. But yeah, I mean, two great starts by two really exciting players for the old lady. Something which, of course, Rangers have been the beneficiary of recently signing Aaron Ramsey on loan. Flavich's now former employers, Fiorentina, were comfortably beaten by 3-0 by Lazio on Saturday evening. Maurizio Sarri's tenure at Lazio has been far from straightforward. However, we've only a league defeat to the champions Inter Milan in the past two months, four consecutive clean sheets registered. Are there signs that Sarri is starting to find his groove for Le Achille? Yeah, I think on the pitch there are. Off the pitch, maybe not. It's quite, it's been quite a, <laughs> uh, how, how would I describe it? It's not been the most settling of January transfer windows and I think one of the things you've always got to remember with Maurizio Sarri, when we've seen him at Juventus, when we've seen him at Chelsea, not so much at Napoli because they were in the stage where they were ready for that rebuild, but he's one of those managers. You hear every manager when they come into a new club, you hear them talking about wanting to put their own mark on the team and to varying levels, they actually mean that or not. Um, I think in the case with Maurizio Sarri, he is maybe the most sort of staunch defender of that and he will absolutely want to make his own uh, blueprint of his team and I think that's something he's really struggled we spoke about earlier in the season struggling to adapt from a 3-5-2 to a 4-3-3 
and gradually there's been signs, like you said, with the clean sheets and the performances that they were that they're starting to get a bit more used to his style of play. Now, off the field, there's been a lot of stuff this month going on because he wants the players to play his system, despite being backed quite well in the summer by Lazio's standards, knowing that they're on a shoestring budget, they still were able to secure Jovan Cabral, a really exciting winger part of Ruben Amorim's title-winning sport in Lisbon side last season, which I think could be great business. But I think generally, this was this is maybe their performance of the season, the victory against Fiorentina. Fiorentina went toe-to-toe with Lazio, two teams. Fiorentina were actually above Lazio going into the game. But Lazio was so clinical. And in some attacking senses, it was really reminiscent of the Simone and Zaghi team in the way that the likes of Milinkovic, Savic and Chiromoli would just so easily break through the lines of defence. Both of them being on the score sheet, Mobile scoring a brace. And... I just think there's a lot of other aspects to like about them as well. You know, like I said, they've become more defensively sound. And I think Sari's also shown the individual elements of his coaching at Lazio to be really effective. I mean, we look at Felipe Anderson, who was a player who just had completely lost his way since leaving Lazio a few years ago to join West Ham United. Okay, he had a good first season, but after that, really fell off, had a really poor loan at Porto last season, where I think he only played four or five league games it really didn't feature much at all and he's come back on this massively cut price deal it was for less than two million pounds in the summer and for a player really lost his way he's now carried out the most pressures in the Serie A this season albeit not with the best succession rate but goes to show sort of the characteristics of the player whilst also being in the top five for dribbles completed so both on and off the ball he seems to have rediscovered his groove not just past levels but certainly to an extent and I think in the bigger picture, what's clear to see is that Lazio are always going to find it immensely hard replacing Simone Inzaghi, being one of the best coaches in Italian football for years gone by, and is proving that again with Inter Milan. Obviously, despite his latest result, he's still done a marvellous job there. And Maurizio Sarri has come in, and there's been some, yeah, really positive signs. And, you know, long may it continue. I think he will... I think the main things he's got to resolve is his relationship with Claudio Latita, the owner, and Iglitari, the sporting director. He's been at loggerheads with them, and I think Iglitari won't be going anywhere. He kind of put an ultimatum over the two of them. Iglitari's been responsible for the signings of Milinkovic Savage, actually keeping these players at Lazio. And I think if he can start to build something together, it may be too late for a top four in this season. But there's certainly some really positive signs for Lazio going forwards based off last few games. And what's been a really mixed bag of a season. Fascinating as always, Michael. Thank you for your enlightening discussions on Italian football. Okay, we are going to draw the episode to a close. It feels like it's gone by really quickly this evening. We are recording on Tuesday nights now. We've had a slight rejig of our recording schedule but the episode will well you'll know now the episode will still be with you every second friday morning so yeah if you don't already do so please do consider subscribing to the podcast please do consider sharing it with a friend please do consider leaving us a rating if you could do any of that we would be extremely grateful anyway i will say goodbye to michael jones michael thank you for your time yeah thank you very much and I'll say thank you to Rudy Barlow, who's just about keeping his eyes open. Thanks, Barlow.
and plethora as always Ali superb and of course a huge thank you to you the listener thanks for your support and yeah hopefully you've found this episode interesting engaging enlightening or yeah uplifting perhaps even anyway on that note thank you again goodbye Thank you.